Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. It just, it was ugly. Uh, I was there when the police cars rolled up in front because people were afraid they were they're going to vandalize the building. Look at all of those fans showing up, or I should say former fans. Security guard trying to put the fire out, but when I say angry, a lot of people are angry. But you see what remains, all of this memorabilia, all that now just trash, and police standing watch. It was a quiet night in January, cold by the standards of San Diego, 57 degrees. Dozens of people were gathered outside an industrial park off of Interstate 15. Some had been there all afternoon. Others had joined in after clocking out of work. At some point, a fire had been lit on the sidewalk, consuming merchandise and memorabilia whose face value constituted tens of thousands of dollars. One man was even arrested. But this wasn't a riot. This was a funeral. Former voice of the Chargers, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, was there. People were throwing rocks at the building, they were throwing eggs at the building, and people came up with boxes of Charger memorabilia, just dumped it in front, soaked it with gas, and threw a match on, and the police came and put the fire out. By the end of the night, few remained. A storm had gathered, and rain had largely dispersed the crowd. It doesn't rain a lot in San Diego, but it rained that night. And when everyone woke up the next morning, they realized it hadn't been a bad dream. The San Diego Chargers had ceased to exist. Some deaths are tragic, sudden, accidental, or otherwise undeserving. Others are long, excruciating, and painful, but all too predictable. The death of the San Diego Chargers was both. Uh, I don't think things will ever be the same here because we lost that franchise, and we didn't lose it. The owner yanked it out of here and took off for Los Angeles, and the the bitterness is just, it's never going to go away. What really died on the morning of January 12th, 2017, when the Chargers packed up and headed for their new home in Los Angeles? How did things break down to the point where a franchise which had called San Diego home for 56 years simply packed up and left? And why does this all even matter? This is the inside story, as told by former San Diego Chargers, staff members, beat reporters, and city officials. This is the story the fans never heard. Over the next six episodes, we'll look at what is arguably the most contentious professional sports franchise move of the last decade. What happens when a city is pushed to the brink of financial collapse? How does the NFL pit its cities against one another and reap the rewards? We'll look at where allegiance lies, with the team or where it plays, and if you can put a price on civic pride. I'm your host, Rafi Cantor. This is Bolted. Chapter 1. Identity Theft. Let's start with a basic question. What gives a city its identity? Pittsburgh is forever tied to the steel industry. Boston has dozens of colleges and universities, a rich colonial history, and even clam chowder. Seattle can lay claim to its bastion of tech businesses and the peak grunge era of music. I mean, come on, Nirvana. But if you're from San Diego, it's what? America's finest city? I was born and raised in San Diego, and I don't even know what that means. Surfing? people surf all over the world. The military? Norfolk, Virginia has tons of military. Blink-182, the zoo, I just don't know. We asked some San Diegans what they thought defined their city. That's a good question. Um, Small, beachy town. A beach, sleepy beach town, but it's also a 
bigger city. I say it all the time that San Diego is either a big little city or a little big city. Uh, and there is a sense of superiority and then also sort of a sense of inferiority. And I guess you could say that the problem at the base is that San Diego has an inferiority complex. I've lived in Philadelphia. I've lived in L.A. I understand a city mindset and San Diego doesn't have it. Well, I've lived here since 1947 and I would describe San Diego as a big city with a small town mind. I would say that it doesn't know what its identity is. Small beach town or a big city? No one really knows. And that's important because there's another thing that San Diego lacks compared to these other great American cities, a thriving professional sports culture. Black and yellow have become synonymous with Pittsburgh because every single sports team in the city wears those colors. Boston's teams have become perennial contenders in nearly every major sport in the last two decades. Seattle, which had its storied NBA franchise stolen from them, still had the Mariners and the Seahawks playing in shiny new downtown stadiums. But San Diego has the Padres, my first true love and the losingest franchise in all of baseball. They've never won a championship and historically, they've been a laughingstock. My point is that identity is what a city can cling to in the face of adversity. And San Diego has lacked both a civic and a sports identity for nearly all of its existence. But during their time in San Diego, the Chargers were the exception. John Gennaro was the managing editor of Chargers SB Nation site, Bolts from the Blue. Most Charger games were sold out, or close to, right? So there's 70,000 people there. There's no other place in San Diego where you get anywhere close to that. Radio host and NFL sideline reporter, Scott Kaplan. Nothing. Nothing rocked like Qualcomm Stadium when the Chargers were good. Not only did the stadium just burst, but the the town was insane. Charger football was far and away the, the, it, it was the identity. You know, you asked earlier about the identity of the city, tourism town. The identity of San Diego was tied to the Chargers, the way the identity of Buffalo or Green Bay is, is, is tied to their teams. San Diego was the Charger town. Here's someone who knows a thing or two about playing for the Chargers in San Diego. Former quarterback and number two overall pick, Ryan Leaf. The born and raised people in San Diego are the diehards, right? My uncle, who was born in Point Loma and spent his whole life there, went to San Diego State. It's a diehard Padres and Chargers fan, right? That's That's... That's the fan that that I think that everybody's talking about that is was so disappointed and felt like they're betrayed and felt like their heart was broke when when the Spanos family decided to move the team to Los Angeles. To the community that supported the Chargers for generations, their relocation has felt uniquely upsetting. But the Chargers leaving San Diego is not the first controversial sports franchise move. It's not even the most recent. In the span of 2019, Oakland lost the Raiders to Las Vegas and the Golden State Warriors to San Francisco. But something has changed in Oakland in the past decade. Because Oakland, for the first time in a million years, is becoming cool and safe and hip. And like all of Silicon Valley is slowly like coming over to Oakland and being like, oh, this Oakland can be cool. And so there, it's just nonstop redevelopment and really cool bars and restaurants and like art scenes and all this stuff. And they're basically saying like, 
we don't need sports because that's that's not our identity. Our identity is to be uniquely Oakland. Oakland has changed, while San Diego has not. In fact, that's maybe one of the defining characteristics of San Diego. It doesn't want to change. There are some qualities which have been a part of San Diego since it was a dusty outpost in the 1800s. Namely, the city has long defined itself by what it's not, Los Angeles. It's Big Brother that sits about 120 miles to the north. Here's Roger Sholey, who was a journalist in San Diego for four and a half decades. L.A. was big because it had a better um, access to the nation through railway lines. San Diego was in, the, as people call it, the cul-de-sac of California. It was hemmed in by Mexico, the desert, mountains, and L.A. So it did not have the same natural resources that San Francisco had, that area didn't have the financial strength of L.A. and didn't have the geographical access to the world that the others did. Los Angeles handed San Diego its first loss of a long rivalry. They got the railroad. Why? San Diego was in, as Sholey put it, the cul-de-sac of California. Am I saying the Chargers moved because San Diego lost the railroad in the 1870s? Of course not. What I am saying is that a pattern had been established. San Diego was going to live in L.A.'s shadow. And in that imbalance, as former Chargers beat reporter Kevin Acey remarks, a so-called little sibling complex was formed. Like, we're so happy and proud that we're not Los Angeles, but then we're also like, well, why does L.A. get all the cool stuff? So while L.A. exploded in population, San Diego became a Navy town. While L.A. developed the infrastructure, industry, and culture to make it Southern California's undeniable hub, San Diego was nice. Really nice. San Diegans don't realize that, like, people in L.A. love San Diego, and they think all the people here are nice, and the brewery culture is great, and San Diegans are just like, we hate you. And I think it's just the, um, you know, like, little brother syndrome. They they always feel like they're they're overlooked, and now L.A.'s stealing our teams away from us. And, you know, why do they get two baseball teams and two football teams and two basketball teams, and we can't even get one? And we're upset with the fact that we're never going to be that big because, you know, the reason San Diego is never going to be as big as L.A. is because L.A. exists and you don't need two of them this close together. World War II threw a wrench into that notion. Meanwhile, the United States moves swiftly to reinforce its garrison in the Far East. Twelve hundred Marines march to their transports at San Diego on their way to war-torn China. The hundreds of thousands who had relocated to San Diego for the war effort, they really liked it and they wanted to stay. Between 1940 and 1960, the population of San Diego County almost quadrupled. It was a burgeoning metropolis, and it was ready to carve out an identity of its own. But San Diego was missing a growing phenomenon that was sweeping other American cities. Professional football. Lucky for them, a new football league had been formed in 1960. The American Football League, or the AFL. A new league, eight new teams, the beginning of an era as the American League football fans sit back to await the action. But San Diego wasn't given a franchise. Yet again, L.A. got something San Diego didn't. To be specific, L.A. got the Chargers. But the Chargers struggled to attract fans in a saturated L.A. market were instant. The Chargers were sharing the L.A. Coliseum with the Rams of the NFL, the USC Trojans and UCLA Bruins of college football, and the newly relocated Los Angeles Dodgers. And while some like the Dodgers saw immediate success, 
The largest World Series crowd ever fills the huge Los Angeles Coliseum for the first World Series game ever played on the West Coast. Over 92,000 cash customers. The Chargers did not. Attendance tallies of less than 10,000 people per game were consistent. The team was owned by Baron Hilton, the hotel magnate and, yes, grandfather to Paris Hilton. Reports estimate that Hilton lost $900,000 in that season alone, roughly equal to $8 million today. The Chargers needed a new home and needed one fast. So Baron Hilton looked to the south. Early 1961, the San Diego City Council, meeting an executive session in the council chambers, invited the Chargers to come to San Diego. The Chargers were coming to San Diego as Los Angeles' rejects. But that didn't matter to San Diego. It welcomed its first professional Major League Sports team with open arms. While the Padres had been playing in San Diego for decades, back in 1961, they were still in the minor leagues. With the Chargers, San Diego was being launched into American sports relevancy. And it's important to understand why San Diego would fall in love with the Chargers. They weren't just getting any other football team. Head coach Sid Gilman was leading a team of revolutionaries, both on and off the field. Whether or not they knew it, they were about to change football. We were a team. Everybody did things together. The players took care of each other. That's Bob Hood. He started working for the Chargers as their water boy in 1962 and climbed the ranks all the way to business manager in the 1970s. The team chemistry was created at training camp, which Gilman had chosen to take place at an unlikely location. It was an uncompleted dude ranch. The ranch was literally called Rough Acres. We had one football field in the middle of the desert, and it did not have an irrigation system. Rattlesnakes, uh, bats, uh, cows that would come into the, um, into the area, outdoor showers. It was a different time. A time before state-of-the-art facilities, before Gatorade, and when football was overshadowed by inequality. Gilman was the first coach to room uh, African-American players and Caucasian players together on the road. Hood recalled a road trip to Atlanta for an exhibition game back in 1963. The segregation was pretty strong in Georgia, which I'd never seen or grown up with. And um, these guys, Ernie Ladd and Earl Faison, we were all playing pool in, in the pool hall at a bowling alley there across from the hotel. And the manager came up and told Tobin that his friends that were black had to leave, that they weren't allowed there to shoot pool. And the entire team left, and next morning they were going to boycott the exhibition game because of the way they'd been treated. The mayor showed up and, you know, glossed it over. The team that Gilman had assembled had been bonded forever, and they were good. They even won the AFL title in 1963 when they routed the Boston Patriots by a score of 51 to 10. The Chargers crushed the Boston Patriots to win their first American Football League championship with their head coach, Sid Gilman. It was the last time a San Diego Major League team would ever win a championship title. Gilman has been called the father of the modern passing game because of his theory of stretching defenses with deep downfield passes. Jim Allison played fullback for Sid Gilman and the Chargers, from 1965 to 1968. And so what he has done, he has opened up the offense, a lot of movement. You know, wherever there's movement, there's going to be opportunity. He put receivers in motion to expose man-versus-zone coverage. 
but he was also the first head coach to study game film, a universal coaching practice today. In the end, Sid Gilman's AFL Chargers saw nine of their 10 seasons finish with a winning record. You know what? We were the initial Chargers in town. The fans were great. They, they wanted a football team. They wanted an NFL team here in town or a pro football team. San Diego would soon get their wish. The AFL and NFL merged in 1970, but that merger marked the beginning of a miserable stretch for the Bolts. They failed to post a winning record until 1978. That's the year the Chargers made a critical move. They hired former San Diego State head coach Don Coriel to lead the team. And Coriel brought with him an offense that changed football forever. So that team and those, I remember watching them as a kid on Monday Night Football, growing up in Northern California. And I was like, who are these guys? This is amazing. Like, how, how do they, look at them, they're chucking the ball all over the place. This is awesome. That was Derek Togerson, sports anchor at NBC7 San Diego. Togerson's predecessor on the sports desk was Jim Laslovic, who played linebacker for Don Coriel and the Chargers from 1978 to 1981. What Don brought to us was this incredible enthusiasm for the game. And he, uh, he had high energy. Uh, he had a, uh, when he got his coaching staff together, it was really a good group of guys who really knew their, their stuff. And, and Don was such a master at the offense. And he could, and he should be in the Hall of Fame, just based on the, the uh, innovations he made offensively. Jim Allison also played for Don Coriel back when Coriel was the head coach at San Diego State in the early 60s. They would measure the stepping. The, the, they, they were very technical of how much time you had. And I remember seeing um, Coach Coriel uh, when he was at with the Chargers, and he was going 1,001, 1,002. You got to get rid of the ball. Prior to Coriel, Football was a running game, but the year Coriel started coaching the Chargers, the NFL made a key rule change. Wide receivers were no longer allowed to be blocked five yards past the line of scrimmage. Coriel saw the advantage this gave to the passing game and exploited it. His vision of, I am going to beat you not only with my great quarterback, I'm going to beat you with matchups. You're looking for the big shot first and then working your way down for your checks, which is what a lot of NFL offenses do nowadays. The Chargers led the league in passing yards for an NFL record six consecutive seasons from 1978 to 1983. The offense was led by three future Hall of Famers, quarterback Dan Fouts, wide receiver Charlie Joyner, and tight end Kellen Winslow. Winslow specifically changed the way that the tight end position was played. Pre-Coriel, tight ends were primarily blockers. Sending these giant players downfield for massive passing gains that didn't exist prior to Air Coriel. Kellen Winslow was, you know, officially he's in the Hall of Fame as a tight end. But if you look at some of the old game films, he lined up everywhere. Um, and and th- that's what, uh, you know, Don was able to do. San Diego had become a laboratory for offense in the NFL. And Don Coriel was its mad scientist. He would liken a team to a certain critter. And, uh, and he would... Uh, He'd then make us a critter who would feed on that critter. It's like one, one week we were killer dogs. And so we all started barking, you know, in the locker room. And he, he pointed out Billy Shields, who's a Christian, and, and a couple of the other Christians on the team said, sorry, sorry, but I have to tell you, they think we're a bunch of pussies. <laughs> well, everybody started yelling, killer pussies! So it was, uh, <laughs> it, it was a lighthearted moment, and we went out and played really well. <laughs> they had confidence, swagger 
a style of play that inspired a legendary team anthem. It was disco, in your ear and on the field. By the time Coriel's tenure was over as Chargers head coach, the league had gone from a run-first game to a pass-first game. The Chargers were revolutionaries again. They had an identity. They were very good. But there's a difference between very good teams and great teams. Super Bowls. San Diego Union Tribune sports editor, Jay Posner. I just think the whole excitement of it defined it. But also what defined it was, you know, blowing out in the playoffs. I mean, they had they had three potential Super Bowl teams, uh, 79, 80, and 81. And for different reasons, they didn't even get to the Super Bowl. You know, I'm trying not to think about it anymore. I've spent way too much of my life thinking about what could have been different and what could have been and, uh, and which fingers I'd wear that second ring on. The closest the team ever got in the Coriel era was the 1981 season. The team went 10-6 and with another record-setting offensive year, winning the AFC West for the third time in a row. During the divisional round of the playoffs, in the sweltering Florida heat, the Chargers and Dolphins played a four-hour game that would be considered by some to be the greatest NFL game ever played. The Epic in Miami. An excellent day for a top, top game as the Miami Dolphins get set to kick off to the high-scoring San Diego Chargers. Um, it was really um, the most uh, demanding game I think we, any of us had ever played in. The Chargers prevailed over the Dolphins by a score of 41-38 to 38 in overtime. Kellen Winslow specifically turned in one of the most impressive playoff performances in history. Playing with a pinched nerve and a gash that would require stitches, he caught 13 passes for 166 yards and a touchdown and blocked a field goal to send the game into overtime. Of course, Kellen, you know, played it just as hard out. I mean, everybody did, but Kellen um, <laughs> getting helped off the field and getting helped back on the field. And uh, it was just a, a wonderful experience, something I'll never forget. But the following week... The exhausted Chargers had to go from the swamp of Miami to the tundra of Cincinnati and play in an infamous game that would come to be known as the Freezer Bowl. Hello, everyone. Dick Kendrick with Merlin Olson in Cincinnati. Just simply, the meteorologist put it this way, it's gone from bitter cold to brutally cold. Cold is nothing new to anyone who has watched football in Green Bay or Cleveland or even New England. But this was one of those days that was so cold they didn't even know how cold it was. Here's broadcaster Dick Enberg on the day of the game. For Don Coriel, the temper differ- temperature differential from last week when he was in shirt sleeves, 84 degrees in Miami when they defeated the Dolphins in overtime, minus 59 today. <laughs> I guess the actual temperature was like 17 below, the wind chill 49 and 50 below. Uh, it was cold, it was, it was damn cold. Icicles dripped from Dan Fouts' beard. Chargers player Hank Bauer said, quote, When I came out of that tunnel, man, the wind just hit you like somebody threw a hundred knives at you, end quote. But uh, as far as cold, nothing like it. It it was it was almost as if you're playing the game in slow motion uh, because you just felt not lethargic, uh, but did not feel certainly as crisp. The game was a disaster for the Chargers. They lost 27 to 7. The Air Coriel offense, which had flown San Diego to the AFC Championship game, 
was grounded. Fouts, who had averaged over 300 passing yards a game during the regular season, threw for just 185 and tossed two interceptions as well. You know, and I know we were a little tired from a long season from having traveled to Miami and played an overtime game in that sapping heat humidity, then flew back home to San Diego, then right away flew to Cincinnati. So there were a lot of factors that went into it. And the other factor that, you know, we can't forget, Cincinnati was darn good that year. Now, we'd beaten them earlier in the regular season, but as the season went along, they just got better, better, better. And so it was, the odds were stacked against us in that game. After playing in back-to-back AFC championship games, the Bolts were going home empty-handed again. There is no Hall of Very Good, only the Hall of Fame. And while eight Chargers players have made Pro Football's Hall of Fame, they've all played on teams that failed to transcend very good. Since the Super Bowl began in 1967, the Chargers have never captured a title. And as former Charger Ben Lieber and John Gennaro contend, this likely contributed to their eventual departure. Yeah, I think so. If you walk in with a Lombardi Trophy, and you feel the excitement of the fans. And like I was saying, the fans are freaking loud now. And so I think the city council would have heard those people. Uh, they would have been riding the high of, of the Super Bowl. And I definitely think they would have found a way. So, um, so yeah, I think the Super Bowl would have kept them in town. Had they actually won the whole thing, I do think they would have gotten a new stadium. And I do think that they would have stayed. <sighs> right. We got to talk about that. I hate to spoil the ending here, but there's really only one real reason that the Chargers moved. They couldn't build a new stadium in San Diego. But the reasons why that couldn't happen are what took us down a rabbit hole that showed us the greed of billionaires and the failings of city politics, with the fans caught in the middle. Now, the Chargers have always had a problem with their stadiums. When the team moved to San Diego in 1961, the Chargers began playing in Balboa Stadium. But it was falling apart and too small to accommodate their successful tenants. Once again, Roger Sholey. I don't think that the the people who wanted the Chargers to come here ever imagined that the Balboa Stadium would be big enough. It's only about 35,000 or something seats when they expanded it for the Chargers. You know that old saying, history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes? Well, a very familiar refrain started playing in the 60s. The Chargers needed a new home. But this stadium wouldn't just materialize out of thin air. The voters had to be convinced that the best use of their money would be a stadium where privately owned teams would play. Jack Murphy was able to convince them. He was a sports editor from San Diego who was hired in the 50s. And I think his uh, mission coming to San Diego was to make this, instead of a pipsqueak town, a major, uh, major sports town. He got a column and he directed as much attention as possible to the idea and the field is named after him, Jack Murphy Field. The mayor and city council, moving ahead rapidly, have appointed architects to complete a study for the site and type of a multi-purpose stadium. The sum that was needed to build a modern world-class stadium in 1965 on some farmland near the San Diego River was $27 million, or about $219 million in today's money. Voters went to the polls, and largely thanks to Jack Murphy's rallying, the measure passed with 72% of the vote. 72%. When's the last time that many people agreed on anything? And so that, you know, that was San Diego's true coming of age as a major league city. Nobody could have known it then, but 50 years later, that stadium, which was later renamed Qualcomm Stadium, 
would become the battleground of the most contentious political fight in San Diego's history. We conducted many of the interviews for this show back in January and February of 2020, when the world was a very different place. One of the many things that has changed is the stadium's fate. For reasons that aren't unconnected to COVID-19, it's being dismantled as we speak. But just a few short months ago, it was still standing there, like an appendix waiting to be removed. Even the way it looked was controversial. Once again, Kevin Acey. It's a bowl. It's an old multi-purpose stadium that was in vogue in the late 60s and the 70s. You know, Pittsburgh had it, Cincinnati had it, um, where you could play baseball and football there. And it's a, it's, it's an oval and it's a giant cement tall. And that's just not the way that they build stadiums now. I love it. I think it's great. People think it's kind of, they, they denigrate it saying, oh, it's falling down. It's not falling down. They say it's horrible. No, it's not horrible. Qualcomm is a dump. Qualcomm was awful. And it was every year it gets closer and closer to being unsafe. Honestly, it's not a joke. Someone's going to die in that stadium. The bones of it are excellent. The design is unique. It's a death trap. It's 100% a death trap. So yeah, controversial. But Jack Murphy was right. The Chargers would soon be part of the merged NFL. The San Diego Padres, who were previously a minor league team, they were welcomed into Major League Baseball as an expansion team because they now had a stadium fit for big league ball. For perhaps the last time in this story, everything went according to plan. Over the years, the stadium stayed mostly the same. Sure, some seats were added and painted and painted again, but for over five decades, it stood there relatively unchanged. It was like a time capsule from a city which used to surround it, one that no longer exists. So why then? After all these years, has a new stadium not been built? Throughout much of this story, there's going to be myriad arguments over the public funding of stadiums. So we thought it'd be important to get an economist to weigh in on that idea. Here's Sam Young, who received his PhD in economics from the University of California at San Diego. In 2005, there was a survey given to a random sample of members of the American Economic Association asking for agreement or disagreement with the statement, Local and state governments in the U.S. should eliminate subsidies to professional sports franchises. 85% of respondents either agreed or strongly agreed, with only 10% neutral and 5% disagreeing. So to be clear, economists are in a strong consensus that publicly funding stadiums for private sports franchises is a bad idea. What had worked for San Diego and Jack Murphy in 1965 would not work in the 21st century. Once again... Jay Posner. As time went on and this dragged on, I think the sense of public dollars being used to pay for these stadiums for billionaires, I think people were, people were tired of that. And I think the, the sense was, why are we doing this? Why are we putting three, four, five, six hundred million dollars of taxpayer money into a stadium? If you want a stadium, build a stadium. So the Chargers had civic economics and public perception going against them. But we also need to be honest with ourselves about another very important fact. While the Chargers were beloved in the community, that love did not always translate into ticket sales. Once again, Ryan Leaf. Um, But one of the running chokes in the NFL is when you played for the Chargers was, you know, that you, you play 16 road games a season. 
because when you play the Green Bay Packers or you play the Chicago Bears, half the stadium is full of cheeseheads or Bears fans and things like that. And, and there's there was some truth to that. Um, there's an unbelievable fan base. Don't get me wrong. But it's not a rabid one. But it wasn't just the bad teams that saw a lack of support. Ben Lieber played linebacker for the Chargers from 2002 to 2005, including a 12-4 season that saw the team win the AFC West in 2004. It's no different than what they experienced up in Carson. Obviously, it's, it's a little bit more magnified. But, you know, the Cowboys would still, you know, their fans would buy more tickets than, than the Charger fans. You know, even back then, you know, we'd get booed coming out of a tunnel of a home game. I spent my childhood going to Qualcomm Stadium. My grandfather had four season tickets in Loge Section 20, Rows 9 and 10, Seats 1 and 2. It was right behind the West End Zone. And I have to agree with Ben. I'd look to my right and see thousands of diehard Chargers fans sitting in the seats they'd had for decades. But I'd look to my left, and I'd often see almost or as many opposing fans, just as loud. San Diego is an incredible city to visit as an away fan, especially as the temperature sits in the 60s and 70s while the rest of the country descends into winter. And frankly, if you're from San Diego and your football team stinks, there's probably better things to do on your day off than spend hundreds of dollars to sit in a decrepit stadium and watch your team lose. Longtime Chargers kicker and franchise points leader John Carney agrees with that notion. Uh, you know, I don't blame the fans in, in any city. If, uh, if you're not winning, uh, there may be better things to do. Uh, and that's the case here in California. There are better things to do. So, uh, yeah, you need to provide a winner. Support for Bolted is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. This is a San Diego-based company. We'd love to help out local business, but they have a global reach. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million. Oh my God, 2 million men worldwide. Join the movement for all your below-the-waist grooming needs. We talk a lot in this episode about football players in the 80s, some pretty legendary beards on those teams, standalone mustaches that are not so great, but it was the 80s, you can imagine. None of them, what I promise you, none of them had what they would have wanted. The Lawnmower 3.0. I'm telling you folks, it has changed my life. No nicks, no cuts, it's waterproof, and we have a promo code for you. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BOLTED at manscaped.com. That's promo code BOLTED at manscaped.com. Want to give a brief moment to talk about our newest sponsor, eBay. Whether rare dead stock or the latest release, find the exact shoe you're looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to go to cop that pair you've been eyeing. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee that includes a digital stamp of authenticity, and it also protects sellers with a verified return process. And for sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees for sneakers over $100, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. And now, back to the show. And there was another consistent roadblock in this story. 
San Diego's politics. Well, there's a lot of theories about this, but political scientists will say that if you have sort of low voter knowledge, people don't stay as aware of civic events as they do in other cities, which allows some more mischief to go on here than it does in other places, and maybe makes it a little less organized. That's David Garrick. He covers City Hall for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Dysfunctional politics is as old as San Diego itself. The city's very first mayor was a guy by the name of Joshua Bean. When he had been mayor for only about a year, he was out with a drinking buddy and he sold a bunch of city-owned land, including City Hall, to himself for $2.50. Just another year after that, Mayor Bean died in a bar fight and San Diego went bankrupt. Remember, the city was only two years old at this point. Mayor Bean had started a long and proud tradition of San Diego politicians losing office for bizarre and truly weird reasons. Mayor Lewis Wilde basically ran a Ponzi scheme in 1920 looking for oil, something that LA had, but of course, San Diego didn't. Mayor Rutherford Irons was only mayor for six months in 1935 when he drank and drove with a government car, hit another vehicle, and then fled the scene. And then there's the more recent stuff, like... Strippergate. 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 Yeah, they actually called it Strippergate. To this day, San Diegans tend to view city politics in a not-so-great light. Here's how NBC7's Derek Togerson puts it. It's not very forward-thinking, I think is, is a good way of putting it. It's There's not much creativity. There's not much can-do attitude. There's not much... There's not a whole lot that gets done here with City Hall, and I don't understand why. One politician we talked to is Mike Aguirre. He plays a very important role in this story, for reasons that we'll explore in a later episode. He was elected city attorney in 2004, right when the talks of a Chargers move were heating up, and he has a rather blunt position on all this. So when you talk about politics... You're really talking about, are your politicians effective? Are our politicians ready to play uh, with the NFL uh, in the big leagues? And San Diego, clearly not. We did not have the elected officials across the board. People kind of look down at San Diego. You know, in the legislature, you know, we're, we're the, uh, the uh, you know, last puppy at the bowl, you know. Do the politicians influence the people? Or do the people influence the politicians? Maybe that's a chicken or the egg type question. Or maybe we get the politicians that we deserve. Here's John Gennaro. There's a lot of NIMBYs, right? The not in my backyard people. The people that desperately want San Diego to remain a sleepy little beach town. Um, There's a reason why if you go to almost any other beach destination in this country, you know what's on the beach? Hotels big hotels. You go to San Diego's beach, there's no hotels. There's no hotels on the beach. And if they are, they're one to two story little boutique hotels you couldn't possibly afford, like the ones down the Pacific Beach Pier. They're not these big, massive monstrosities because everyone wants to be able to see the ocean from two blocks away. And that that is San Diego in a nutshell, right? Like Miami, even LA to a certain extent has said, People want to come here. They want to be on the beach. So let's give them an opportunity to do so. That's why they're here. And San Diegans say, no, no, no. We're going to build our hotels along the 8 Freeway in Mission Valley. That's where you can stay. You don't like that. You want to spend some more money? You can stay downtown, but you stay the hell away from our beaches. And 
that's just kind of always been the way it is. I think that's the way it's always going to be. The more we dig in, the more we realize that this is where the entire conflict of this story rests. There are the people who want San Diego to remain a sleepy little beach town, and there are the people who want San Diego to be an NFL city. As this story wears on, it will become clear that you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. And the politicians, the same ones who had a knack for getting publicity for all the wrong reasons, they were supposed to represent everyone across this divide. For a while, the Chargers were the stopgap on this growing chasm. In their first two decades in town, the team gave something to the city that it had sorely been lacking. A real identity. Their distinctive passing offenses put San Diego on the map in the national sports consciousness as it never had been before. Literally with the concrete beams at Jack Murphy Stadium, the Chargers had cemented their roots into the city. But stadiums are a lot like cars. The minute you drive them off the lot, their value plummets. And when the family has been driving in the same car for 50 years, someone is going to pick a fight. The question is, how far are you willing to take it? Because by taking that franchise up the road, the value of that franchise rocketed north of $2 billion. And I guess, isn't America great that a guy could screw a city and all these fans and all the people that work for him down here and go up there and net all the profits and walk away despite being an incompetent owner? And that's what he is. Hacksaw got a little ahead of me there, because before we wrap up, I want to talk about another team that moved away from San Diego in May of 1984. But Sterling first said he would sell the team, then decided to keep it, and insisted it would stay in San Diego. I'm comfortable here and I'm happy here, and I just want to stay here in San Diego. Does this mean that the team will stay here indefinitely? Absolutely. And now they are going to leave. Donald Sterling moving the Clippers to Los Angeles portended everything that would come later in this story. Disputes between the team and the city over the venue in which the team plays, an owner who claimed that he wanted to stay in San Diego while ultimately having their eyes on the bright lights of LA. It made San Diego question its position among the great American cities. After all, the Clippers were going from being the only team in San Diego to being the second team to the powerhouse Showtime Lakers in Los Angeles. The news release also quotes Donald Sterling as saying, We are delighted to bring our team of the future to the greatest community in the world, our home, Los Angeles. San Diego was latching onto the Chargers now more than ever before. And that love also captured the interest of, at long last, the final player in this story. He was the son of Greek immigrants who had amassed his fortune in construction and real estate. He had long sought to own a professional sports franchise, and eventually, the opportunity presented itself in San Diego. Less than two months after the Clippers left town, majority interest in the Chargers changed hands for the second and final time. For a fee of $48.3 million, the Chargers now belong to construction magnate Alex Spanos. He's a special breed. He's a self-made uh, millionaire. He's a great American success story. And um, yeah, he, he had a, a bit of an attitude about that, I think. In a statement he released upon his purchase of the team, Spano said, quote, It is my plan to become actively involved in the management of the team, and I believe my business experience and enthusiasm for the game will keep the Chargers a strong and viable team. I also wish to mention that I am particularly glad that the Chargers' home base is San Diego. I have always had a deep affection for the city of San Diego, and I am glad my new interests will demand I spend a great deal of time 
in this beautiful city. End quote. Did you and other San Diegans know who the Spanoses were when they bought the team? No, absolutely not. Dean Spanos and other members of the Los Angeles Chargers organization declined our request for interview. On the next episode of Bolted, the story of how one family changed the course of the Chargers franchise and San Diego forever. Alex was an owner who thought he could treat football the way he treated his construction company, and he just couldn't do it the same way. It's a family business, and the family is first. Maybe the family is first through tenth. He just didn't have his dad's gumption. He didn't, uh, you know, have his dad's instincts. Did have his dad's temper. That was when they started to lose the Southern California market and the Los Angeles market. Bolted is written and edited by me, Rafi Cantor. Our producer is Ben Stein. We're mixed by Jordan Cantor, who also wrote and performed our original music. Special thanks to Alex Wu, Ron Cantor, and Nate and Lisa Stein. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.